Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 90, the Listener Feedback Show, recorded April 14th, 2013, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. That's right. You ask for it, and you are getting it, the Listener Feedback Show, taking all the thousands and thousands and thousands of questions. Okay, so it's three people, but still, taking all the questions that I've gotten recently and distilling them down into a single show uh and with me to help me do that as always are the great tandem to my left and to my right beginning with the command line godfather mr christopher neves hi chris how you doing tonight everybody how's the weather treating you up there in uh, montana grr all i can say <laughs> is absolutely grr we are in a middle in the middle of a blizzard and it's all sorts of fun I think we're sitting at about four inches on the floor. Wow. Wow. At least. Then you should close a window to keep that stuff outside. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it's not going to be on the floor. Uh, and wow. that voice, that that ready wit, always at hand with a quip, is the gooey kid, Mr. Seth Anderson. I'm in radio mode tonight. Seth Anderson. Hi, Seth. Hey, Mark. No, sorry, just <laughs> testing out the new microphone. That's right. Seth's first week with the new uh, Audio-Technica AT2100, uh, I think it is. And yeah, and that's actually why we didn't do the show last week is because the stuff didn't come in. Mark said, I'm not doing the show <laughs> right. if you don't have the new equipment. I'm just, I'm done with you. Yeah, that's right. Uh, actually, the reason we didn't do a show last week is I went on a little vacation with my family. It was spring break for my kids this week. Um, and we took a couple of days off. I, I took two days off of work, Monday and Tuesday. We left Saturday, headed up to Chattanooga, Tennessee to see the, the Chattanooga choo-choo. And there's all sorts of cool stuff. But where I live, just north of Atlanta, it's only about a 90-minute drive. And uh, so it didn't cost a whole lot. And for my kids, you know, if, you, if two things are required to make it a vacation, you have to stay in a hotel, you have to eat at restaurants more than once a day. If you do those two things, it's a vacation. So uh, we, we managed to get up there and get back relatively inexpensively. But I forgot to let these guys, we planned it weeks in advance. I forgot to let them know. It wasn't until Saturday night before Sunday we're going to do a show. I sent them an email and said, oh, by the way, guys, I'm not going to be here. Sorry about that. Yeah, and I didn't check Whoops. that email until Sunday, about two hours before the show. I go, <laughs> okay, no show. This will be next week's news. <laughs> Oops. So uh, sorry about that. I I, uh, uh, I know that there was some disappointment. I, I I love that, actually. It's great. Every time we miss a show, I hear from, from listeners saying, hey, where you been? So that no reason to panic. Um, also, some of the, a couple we've drawn to a close, a couple of other shows on the network, and the, the Tightwad Tech show we haven't done in a couple of weeks, just for various reasons. Uh, so I actually had one listener say, well, it looks like you've stopped podcasting. Uh, it was great while it lasted. No, no, I haven't stopped. It just took a week off or two. It's okay. Really. We're still here. We have to do that every once in a while. Otherwise, I think we'd all go stir crazy. Yes. Um, yes. And if I see, seem a little uh, peppier tonight than usual, there's a reason for that. And I, I just sort of was listening to myself going, man, you really are kind of pumped up. Um, I don't know if I've told you guys about it. I, I um, mentioned it on one of the other shows, the... Uh, the One Meal, One Workout show, but I recently discovered something called the Black Blood of the Earth. Either of you guys ever heard of that? No. What is this Black Blood of the Earth? That thing? sounds interesting. Yes, it is a coffee something. Uh, I heard about it on the uh, Twit Network. Uh, Leo Laporte had the uh, 
creator of the black blood of the earth on his uh what is it triangulation show and uh he uh philip bruton is his name he's a physicist nuclear physicist who um didn't like coffee but didn't like the the caffeine the sugar necessary to get caffeine from cokes so he set out to create a better coffee and um he created something called the black blood of the earth essentially it's a very uh, con- uh, uh concentrated coffee extract so it's you know it's like your cup of espresso times 40 um it's, oh. it's, you you dilute it um like one part black blood of the earth four parts water that's how strong it is um in fact he says that you sh- that uh, an average um human male he doesn't care about monkeys. The average human male uh, shouldn't ingest more than 100 milliliters, roughly two shot glasses a day. It's got that much caffeine in it. Dang. Yeah. So uh, imagine the caffeine withdrawal you're yeah. going to go through if you started overdosing on that. I am not Ooh, a coffee with drinker. With a joke cola chaser. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a coffee drinker, but Aaron Butler, the uh, former host of this show, is. And uh, for his birthday, I ordered him a bottle of Black Blood of the Earth. Uh, the stuff is fairly expensive. It's about 40 bucks a bottle, but since it comes from San, San Francisco and has to be shipped overnight or wrap, uh, express at least because it's a cold product, um, the shipping is like another $35. So by the time it was all said and done, it was almost $100 for a, a liter of this stuff. And a liter of it is uh, about a month's worth of coffee if, if it's one person drinking one or two cups a day. So uh, Aaron loved it, and I tried it. I don't like coffee. I've never liked coffee. It's it's bitter. It's astringent. I just I don't like it. Well, it turns out when you cold brew the stuff and you distill it the way uh, Philip Bruton does, you get none of that. It's incredibly smooth. There's no bitterness. And not only did I not mind it, I loved it. I really absolutely love the stuff. Hmm. So I bought Uh-oh. my own bottle of it. And uh, my wife does not drink coffee. Neither of us have ever... Uh, really been coffee drinkers she tried it and she liked it even more than i did um she would, we went through a liter bottle again that's roughly 30 or 40 cups of coffee in a week and a half between the two of us uh, I, w- I would come home at the end of the day and think my gosh how much of this did you drink today woman uh and then we ran out and the next day she was like oh i'm dragging i can barely function i need more of this stuff so i realized two things one I needed this stuff in my life. And two, I couldn't afford to have this stuff in my life. And three, <laughs> I'm a geek who enjoys experimentation, so I'm going to make my own. <laughs> so I began the process of trying to recreate uh, Philip Bruton's work. He, he's fairly tight-lipped about his process, uh, and rightly so, right? He's making good money off of it. Uh, people, right. Oh, yeah. You know, he ships the stuff all over the world. Uh, so, but, you know, he gives enough information and I know enough about, you know, basic extraction techniques, uh, to start hacking away at it. So my first batch of this, I've been making very small batches like in, in Mason jars. So I end up with a couple of cups worth of the stuff, um, at a time, starting with very small batches. My first batch, totally undrinkable, was nasty. I threw it out. Uh, second batch, not bad. It was Okay. Third batch, not as good as the second batch. Um, fourth batch was good. Good. Not, not as good as his. His, you know, assuming a scale of 1 to 10, putting his at a 10, 
this is a this is a solid six, totally drinkable, and I can make it for about ten bucks a liter instead of eighty. So, I just had two and a half ounces of this stuff diluted in in a, a twelve ounce mug just a few minutes before the show started, and let me tell you, <laughs> I am feeling the results of it. You are bouncing well, and buzzing. And hey, Mark, I would be curious, like the first batch and the third batch that you didn't like how a coffee drinker would rate them someone who actually you know has become addicted to coffee if they would say it was totally undrinkable or if oh this just tastes like coffee yeah i don't that's a good question i don't know but i'm just judging it that the way i put it uh philip bruton says that uh, the black body the funranium labs check it out f-u-n-r-a-n-i-m-i-u-m funranium labs.com um he describes it as that tastes like coffee smells and that's a pretty good description because how many people, I was one of them, said, man, I love the smell of coffee, but I don't like the taste of it. And uh, I would be one that would not match that sympathy. I yeah. hate coffee, period. You don't like the smell of it either? No. Well, the, the second, like, we have a grinder in our, our grocery store. Yes, my town is big enough to actually have a grinder in yeah, the grocery store. We have, yeah. Barely. <laughs> the Millstone, but, uh, right? That's, that's the brand, probably. Little apothecary. Thing? I don't know. I don't know. I, I can't even go down the aisle after someone grinds coffee. Oh, wow. My allergies flare up so bad that I'm seizing or trying to breathe through a itty bitty straw. So I won't so, be sending you uh, some of this when I'm done. Just so you know. But well, uh, my I've wife been, would love it. She's a coffee fanatic. Okay. So, so this stuff is. Um, it's really, really strong. It's like. Uh, one ounce of this is equal to maybe three or four ounces of Starbucks, which is really strong, you know, espresso. Right. right. Um, and I've I've got my first large batch. I've got a half gallon of it uh, going right now. I process it anywhere from three to six days. I mean, it, it takes a while. Um, and I went and bought a, a Buchner funnel. Are you familiar with, with what a Buchner funnel is? I just oh. like saying it. That it, it reminds me of uh, uh, Young Frankenstein. Buchner! Um, but anyway, <laughs> I was the only one who got that joke. Frau Bucha. No, no one. Or, or we got it and just didn't think it was that yeah. good. Anyway, uh, a Buchner funnel is, uh, basically it's just a filtration funnel that you use in a vacuum filtration process with a Venturi aspirator and a vacuum flask. So I bought some of that laboratory gear off of com slash Amazon and then set up a, uh, a rig on my, my kitchen table. My wife is super excited about that too. Uh, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and well, if it gets her more of that coffee, she's yeah, become yeah. addicted to. She should be happy about. It. And so I've I've been able to process. Once I've got it all done, I'm actually keeping a log of of all the batches I've done, all the processes I've done. Once I'm I'm uh, fairly confident that I ha- have a process that anybody can replicate. I'm going to publish it. I'm going to open source the knowledge to the world, so that if somebody wants to do it, they'll be able to. Now, not many people are going to want to because it takes a week to make a cup of coffee. Not many people are willing to do that. But, you know, I'm a barbecue guy, right? I, I make my own bacon. I, I make my own pastrami. I'm used to starting something three weeks before I get the end product. Uh, so yeah. you are the Samba to his active directory. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I am reverse engineering the process based on his. I don't know if I'll ever be as good as his because he uses really high quality initial ingredients. I'm right. running out and buying stuff from Starbucks. So I don't think mine will ever be as good as his. Uh, but as long as it's good enough that I can afford it, that's what matters. 
Uh, well. So, you know, you can develop some contacts down in Colombia and uh, get on all the do not fly lists because people will think you're trafficking <laughs> drugs. And, you know, you can get some super high quality stuff, too. Yeah, well, you know, good quality grounds are are available, right? Uh, and I'm sure somewhere, you know, in this area, in the um, Atlanta area where I live, there's probably some artisan roaster who who gets his own coffee beans green from from Guatemala and roasts them himself. And and, and maybe I'll find those guys out and get my own grinder because they say you really should brew it within seconds, like thirty to forty five seconds. Uh, from the time you grind it is is optimum time to brew it. I don't know. Yeah, I've just I've well, been reading a I lot. Mean, that about would make this. sense because you know so much of that aroma is lost in a smell. And right. um, but you know after you get your process down, you should then get a batch of super high quality beans or whatever right. and see how much difference that makes. But I would not experiment with the good exactly. stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'm so. buying the ten dollar a pound stuff. From the grocery store. That's what I started with, just the stuff at the grocery store, Chris. And then right. I've bought a couple of, of things from Starbucks. Again, readily available, uh, off-the-shelf stuff. So, yeah, once I'm, once I'm confident in the process, uh, I will do that and see if it really makes a difference. But cool. the stuff... Keep, it, us in, keep us in, in the line. I'd like to know what happens to that. So I use a shot glass to measure it. And when you pour it out of the shot glass, it still lines the glass. It's that thick. It's, wow. it's viscous. Um, Sounds like some of the, the stouts that I drink. Yeah. Next week on Everyday Coffee Brewing, we will continue <laughs> this rousing discussion. <laughs> I just I just thought I'd, I'd bring it up because there is a large cross-section between geekdom and coffee done, co- coffee geeks out there, you know, and, and I've been sort of uh, browsing in those circles recently and, and the ridiculous flame wars, you have, it's just as bad as, you know, Gnome versus KDE. But it's about burr grinders versus blade grinders. And, you know, they're just all (laughs) crazy about it. Um, You know, you should maybe reach out to thinkgeek.com and see if you can uh, sell your stuff once you get your thing. And you could become like a supplier to them. Yeah, but I don't want to. That's the thing. I I don't want to sell it. There's already somebody out there who sells a great product. I I just want to open source the knowledge for anybody to make their own. Okay, well, you, you you could become rich and well known. Well, I'm I'm already going to become rich and well known as a podcaster. So, oh, okay, you know, it's not really an issue. Well, then, then this could fund works. your podcasting. That that's what you can. This can be your sub your um, uh, what's the word? Your stake fortune to build up your podcasting fortune. <laughs> seed money. Yeah, there seed money. Go, there you there go. You that's go. what I was looking for. Okay, that's random. Um, moving right along, Seth ransomware time yeah i was uh i was sitting watching um restaurant impossible and playing solitaire yesterday when i got a call from a friend of mine who uh tried to tell me about this new virus going around where it's an fbi page and i said oh you have ransomware on your computer and she goes yes please help so i said okay and i came over there and i got rid of it and i got it it is the first time i've ever met ransomware on a machine and it wasn't as hard to get rid of as I thought it would be. So it was just a, it was just a pesky little virus Trinity rescue kit and uh, you know, a new account and then antivirus and malware bytes took care of it right away. Malware bytes is a great tool. It's awesome. I love them. It's worth paying for their service. I would say. If you're the one that well, let's not get carried hit. away. I mean. Whoa, Chris, it's not up to spin right level, but they are good. I don't know. I would. I've actually, I've, 
and you know I normally don't recommend it to most people because I want them right. to keep coming back. Yeah. But when I see when I see the same person come back every month for seven months, it's like, dude, you're doing something wrong. I'm not gonna tell you you're doing something wrong, but you need to either pay me a monthly fee to keep your stuff clean, even if you don't bring it in, or pay for this. And I haven't seen them. Well, no, I take that back. I did see one a couple of week, couple of weeks ago, but it was really, really, really messed up. So, so um, a month ago, one of our listeners, Richard, I believe it was, um, he said I could use his last name, but I told him thanks. I have my own. Um, challenged Chris, threw down the gauntlet, and said, "I challenge thee to use only Ubuntu stock with Unity for a month." Well, it's been a month, Chris, and uh, have you fallen in love with it yet? Let's just say I just about, there's about, oh, on a nightly basis, I wanted to take my laptop and bash it with a hammer, throw it out the window, and then shoot it with a gun. That's how much I loved Unity. (laughs) So you were passionate about it is what I'm hearing. Oh, yes. Very passionate that I absolutely still hate the thing. Help end hardware abuse. Call (laughs) 559-IMOB. Your dollars can help. <laughs> but we'll go into a little bit more a little bit later. Um, I, I got a couple of things that I wrote down in our uh, on the Google Notes. So the guys could see it as I was doing it. About halfway through the month, I just gave up writing about it because it was just, I, I was feeling like I was going insane. But you and did now, you did give him the full four weeks, right? I did. I did not clean install it until, what, an hour before show. So... Four weeks minus one hour. <laughs> okay. So if, if so. that's not a month, then uh, I, I need to go back to math or something. But that's about as close to a month you're going to get. Challenge accepted. <laughs> achievement unlocked. No thanks. I now have the badge and I want to throw it yeah. away. <laughs> so I, one of the things that we did in Chattanooga was we went to see Ruby Falls, which is a waterfall inside a mountain in a cave. It's it's a it's a wondrous thing. It truly is. It's a 145 foot waterfall, 300 feet below the limestone mountain. Trouble is, you have to walk a mile through small cave to get there. I'm claustrophobic. Have been most of my life. Not only am I claustrophobic, I'm big. The average roof height that they carved out was built for. You know, this was like in the 1800s or so. It was built for men who were the size of an 1800s. You know, they were six feet was like the tallest the ceiling got. I'm six foot five. My head was bleeding by the time we were done. I had bumped it so many times. So it was one of those things. I was glad I was there. Once I was in the falls room, this vast chasm that had been created by a natural whirlpool. It was amazing. It was a, a beautiful part of God's creation. I'm so glad I was there. I don't ever want to do it. Again, <laughs> that sounds like me in unity. <laughs> Only you didn't get the grandeur of enjoying having done it. Right. Just the bitter taste of a poorly written system. <laughs> Speaking of poorly written systems, anybody use Netflix recently? It's impossible to find what you want to find. You have to hope it shows up on your suggested list or you're never going to find it. But still... They managed to pass out an unbelievable number in the last quarter. Yeah. Yes. That's um, the CEO, Reed Hastings, uh, on Facebook, 
revealed that Netflix served up over 4 billion with a B hours of streaming video during the first three months of the year. So now this is not accounting for any DVDs. If people remember those circular discs that were silver and fit into the slot on the computer, you know, that's not counting those, but what was that again? What are those things? I I don't understand what those things are. Yeah. uh, We're going to go into the history of the internet next week (laughs) and we'll talk about those, but uh, 4 billion hours in in a quarter, quarter. not in their existence in a quarter in three months. Right. And last June, they hit 1 billion hours for the first time in a month. So less than six months later, they're averaging well over a billion. I mean, that's freaking ridiculous, people. Don't you have anything better to do with your lives and to sit at home and watch Netflix? Apparently well, I think not. The, well, I was going to say the, the key there, I think, though, is that they're, they're not quantifying where all the hours right. were used up. Yeah, you're not how sitting many, at home because you can take Netflix many, with you anywhere. Yeah, exactly. How many how many people have it on their phones? In one of on the greatest tablets, pieces of irony the in the world, um, recently, well, it was, it was a while back now, but we were waiting in the theater to see a movie, and I was playing Netflix on my kids on my, on my phone for my kids. So we were watching a movie while waiting to see a movie because they were bored. So that, that that's the kind of stuff that, and that, I can see how you could get there now if they would just start doing things like live sporting events and things like that, they could do a billion hours over a weekend. Wow. I I think their problem is scaling. I don't think they can scale up that big with current technologies in the current, you know, unless they're going to be on the, uh, the internet two backbone, I don't think their servers could get that much outgoing speed. Well, but they have servers all over the place. Like, for example, I know that they, like, have a deal with, like, Suddenlink, which is a cable company that they actually Netflix server on Suddenlinks on network. Right. So you can watch Netflix without ever leaving the Suddenlink section of the of the Internet. And I'm sure Time Warner has that. I'm sure every, every ISP, well, all the big ISPs have stuff like that where, you know, you're not leaving, um, you know, you're not leaving your ISP's domain to watch them. I mean, I'm sure not just next Netflix, but other companies like that, that do streaming have similar deals in place. Um, so, I mean, but still how many people use Netflix? It, are, are there a hundred million? If there are a hundred million, that is a thousand hours per person per month. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. We, we use it a lot in my house. Right. Uh, I can say that we have certainly contributed to our numbers there. Wow. That, well, that's, that's the other thing is how many people have multiple connections in their household all eating up hours at the same time. But I so. still say it's very poorly designed. It's difficult to discover new stuff. It's hard to search out what you actually want. Um, they oh, they yeah, really need to hire some uh, a good designer to work on their interface. Uh, and, and continuing our tradition of bringing you numbers, much like yeah. the four Because Mark loves them so yes. much. That's um, I love for these we have more numbers about smartphones android up 13 percent ios down 17 percent blackberry down 81 percent ow and windows phone up 52 percent yeah and uh that translates into um 
iOS now has 43.5% of the U.S. market. Android has over 51%. RIM is now under 1%. And Windows surging up a massive 52% is now up to 4.1% of the uh, um, U.S. Um, smartphone market. I so, still you know, maintain that any number represented as a percent is BS. Well, I mean, the, the first ones where it tells you the percentage up and down, I, I totally agree that those are marketing. But right. when it tells you a percent of the overall right. market, I'm to okay me, those are legitimate numbers. Yeah, but when it talks so. about Windows up an amazing 52% to 4% of the total market. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and actually, that's, that's headline Italy, writing there. Yes. Yeah. In Italy, Windows Phone now makes up 13.1% of new phone sales. So Microsoft living large in the international <laughs> market. From everything I hear, uh, Windows 8 Mobile uh, is, a, is a good platform. It's a good, solid phone that people who have like. They were just so late to the game that they've right. got a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, a, a guy I was talking to at that luncheon I went to was he was he told me that it was faster, you know, switching apps and stuff on his Windows phone than it was on Android that he had just switched from, and so he said he would not go back, but he would stick with Windows eight. He was very passionate about it. You you met a passionate nerd, really? I've, I'm not familiar with that breed of human. Well, I met a passionate Windows phone nerd. That <laughs> that those are rare. So. uh but yeah, and he did not look as if he received any money from Microsoft to say that. So, um, but of course, I did not ask him. Um, but yeah, so anyway, they I've I've only seen pictures and mock-ups. I have not seen a Windows Phone in person. But the 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 and press. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Doesn't that speak volumes right there? That you never see a Windows Eight Phone live in the wild. I see iPhones everywhere I go. I see Android right. phones everywhere I go. I have seen once in my entire existence, literally one time, a Windows phone in the wild. It was at the mall, even, and it was Windows Phone 7. Well, see, I don't think I've ever seen a Windows phone at any of the kiosks around here. I'll have to actually look next time. No, I'm just talking about a person using it, not for sale, but you know, a, a human using it. Well, I'm just talking for sale. I mean, I, I haven't seen them for sale up here. I mean, I, I think, yeah, I don't even remember seeing even in the flyers for the mobile fo- for the mobile carriers, you know, how they have all their phones. I don't even think they're in there. But yeah, what's going to bail Microsoft out? out? Things like tablets, too, that you might see up there yeah. soon. What's going to bail Microsoft out is the surging, roaring success of Windows 8 PC. That's why there aren't the mobile phones out there, because people are just going straight for Windows 8 PC. <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah don't they wish have you used that pile of garbage <laughs> that's yeah, worse than no. unity <laughs> first quarter shipments of pcs fell 14 percent from the same time last year according to the international data corp uh it's the f- deepest quarterly drop in the industry since 1994 and another one uh staked it at an 11 percent decline but part of it has to do with they they consider things with detachable keyboards as tablets, and of course you know the no the new Windows eight devices they come with like detachable keyboards, so they would technically be considered a tablet under this survey. But 
there's still Microsoft is doing a great job of making us a post PC world because they are trying to kill off the PC <laughs> any way they know how. Um, and I guess they're just trying to kill themselves as well. So Harry Carey by Microsoft. So here's what I think about that. There was pent up demand for PCs. People weren't buying PCs because they would have Vista on them. And so people were living with their XP machines. Seven came out. It was solid. It was a huge success because people went out and bought new hardware because they had to. Their old hardware right. wouldn't run Windows 7. And finally, there was an operating system they could live with. Windows 8 came out. Everybody just got a new computer. They're not going to rush out and buy new stuff. So when you compare quarter over quarter, I, I think that's really all it was. It was just people were buying computers because they needed them. Now they don't need them because they just bought them. And and you can't really blame Windows 8 for that. There's a lot of things you can blame Windows 8 for. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think you can blame it for sagging PC sales. I think you can blame it for the degree to which they sagged. I think they hastened the decline. Had Windows 8 been a solid OS, I'm not saying that PC sales would have shot up, but I'm saying they wouldn't have tanked to the order of the magnitude they have. Uh, you know, that's, that's splitting hairs. But yeah, I could see that because, I mean, I know... A lot of people, when they, they go to buy a new machine, they'll ask their friends and family and fr fellow geeks, you know, what's this Windows 8? Is it something I want? And I don't know. I know of probably five people that have Windows 8 and actually don't mind it. I actually worked with someone, and the first thing I did to make their computable usable is I went to Ninite, and I downloaded the uh, classic uh, start menu and then I checked the option to make that the default start so now it looks exactly like Windows 7 It's and it's uh, fast and solid so once you do that tweak to get rid of all of the Windows 8 crap Windows 8 is actually a pretty good OS alright and moving right along to antitrust suits one of our favorite things microsoft nokia and oracle are saying android is confiscated is what's the word i was looking for confiscatory confiscate there's a word and i can't say it they're bad people <laughs> and and i love this that this is the kind of reporting you can only get on the internet i'm going to read the first uh, line of the article to you. After Microsoft's extortion racket has failed to stop Android, and after Oracle's crazy baseless lawsuit failed to stop Android, and after Nokia adopting Windows Phone failed to stop Android, Microsoft, Nokia, and Oracle are now grasping at the next straw in their fruitless efforts to stop Android. They've filed an antitrust complaint with the European Union, claiming Google unfairly bundles applications with Android. That sounds totally unbiased to me. No. Right. And, you know, totally. I mean, well, but in considering the fact that they're actually wrong about their, um, at their, um, assumptions, you know, because Google doesn't, but, you know, I feel kind of sorry for Nokia. They really don't have a choice in this lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> Microsoft says, look, you're only still around as a company because we chose you out of, uh, because you were cheap to sell our phones. So you're going to be a party to this lawsuit. And they're like, yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> at least you know so it's really microsoft and oracle uh, they're still waving the symbian flag proudly <laughs> right so basically here's the way it goes if you want to to uh sell google apps on your phones not google apps as in the the product but google mail um google um 
what's the, the list Google there? Play Store. The, yeah, the Play Store. There's others. Uh, what's in the yeah, list? Yeah, the Google there? Talk. Yeah, Google Maps. That's the huge one. Yep. Right. Right. Yeah, the, Maps, the YouTube yeah. app. If you want to do any one of those, say say you want Google Maps. Everybody wants Google Maps. Google Maps right. are the best. You Apple, have to do all the Google others. So you can't have your mail app and not have Gmail and have Google Google Maps. So they've bundled those together. And their agreement is you can take all or nothing. Now, again, Android is open source. Anybody can do what they want with the open source code. These apps are not open source. Gmail, Maps, YouTube, those are not open source. And part of the agreement is if you are an OEM and you want to supply YouTube on a phone, you got to give the whole suite of things with it. It's all or nothing. Yep. That's what they're claiming is a strong arm tactic. Well, um, I got one thing for Microsoft. Word, <laughs> Office, <laughs> Outlook. Uh, can you buy any of those separately? Sure, you can buy Word. It costs exactly the same amount as buying Office. Yeah. But you can buy it separately. Yeah. Well, and, you know, th- one of their complaints also is that by giving away the operating system, Google is creating an unfair advantage in much in my this is something Microsoft is real familiar with because you know their Internet Explorer was so good that they had to give it away to compete with Netscape Um, so they're really familiar with that tactic and if anyone can recognize that in another company I'm betting Microsoft could so kudos to you Microsoft for pointing that out to the rest of the world all right and while we're on the topic of Google Google gives an afterlife option. So when you're dead, your Google stuff can continue to live on through the inactive account manager. Right. And apparently it's, I I didn't, I was going to look, but then I forgot about it, but you can go there (laughs) and set this where if your account is inactive for, for so many days and you can set it like, you know, three, six, nine or 12 months that, um, a trusted contact can receive data from some or all of several services such as Blogger, your contacts, your Google Drive, your Gmail, and Google Plus. Or so, you can just you have know, it wiped away. You can just have it deleted. Right. If I don't log in for 12 months, delete everything off of every device I have registered. Right. And to me, it's kind of cool. I mean, you know, another thing you could do is just share your password with someone that you wanted to have access to your stuff. But... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of a neat thing, I guess, that, you know, because how many times have you seen a story where, you know, somebody's son is a Marine overseas and they died and now they want to see Johnny's emails, but Yahoo is like, nope, sorry, we're not going to give you a password and his account got erased and now the family's heartbroken. You know, I mean, stuff like that. So this is a way that you can go in and if you're on Google, you can like give someone access to your email if you don't log into it for a year or whatever. Or, you know, if this is the account you use when you were looking for a mistress or whatever, you can have it deleted. (laughs) So the choice is really up to you. Google does a good job of giving you freedom of choice. Yeah, because any rights to privacy or um, confidentiality uh, end at death. That's right. the way it works in the U.S. I don't know about yep. the rest of the world. So, um, you know, if you have a, a, a confidentiality agreement with your doctor or with your lawyer, uh, those those cease to exist once you die. And your information doesn't necessarily become public record, but it can be subpoenaed and that sort of stuff. So right. um, Google is giving an interesting out there and saying, we will sort of, as your last will, uh, delete it if you want. Or we'll share it. We can go either way. I think it's kind of cool. I think exactly 0.01% of people will use it. 
Well, it depends yeah. on the type of person. The people that write those, uh, you know, the get hit by a bus packets, yeah. you know, for their wives or the the bit the place where they work, I could see those people doing it. Um, but I think uh, sharing your password doesn't that break your terms of agreement with my with Google? Well, that's the thing. You're not sharing a password. You're designating another person. Right. No, I was talking about what Seth said earlier yeah. about how they could just share how he could just share the password to somebody. I think that violates your terms of agreement with Google and uh, can get your account suspended and deleted without anyone being able to access it I think it at what all. it says is is you're responsible for what you're doing. I don't think it says you can't share it. It just says that anything done is assumed to be done by you. Yeah. Unless no, it's changed oh, it recently. I'm looking at the inactive account manager and you can actually set an auto response in Gmail to become <laughs> active. So, you know, I'm dead. If, if, <laughs> Yeah, if nobody logs in for a year and people are emailing you, please stop emailing me. I am dead. Can yeah. I get a moment's peace? Uh, I, uh, or something like that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm out of the office forever. I will not be getting back to you. There is no contact number where you can reach me in case of an emergency. <laughs> I can yeah. see a lot of fun being had with that too, though. Well, and there's a there's a project. I don't know if it ever got off the ground. It's called Afterlife.me, um, where a Brian Brushwood came up with the idea. Uh, he was. He said, uh, "If well, there's a dead man switch, you got to log in every year on your birthday and then like push a button. And if you don't, um, it'll send you a warning. And then if you ignore the warnings, it will glean your Twitter and Facebook and Google Plus stuff and and retweet, repost exactly at the same time. So like on what you posted April first on the last year of your life, they'll post again on April first every year from the rest of your life. Wow. Uh, so you become like a, an internet ghost." Huh. <laughs> that could be. I fun. know that um, MySpace. One time, there was a company. There was a project to. It would copy over MySpace profiles of people who had died, and I, I don't remember what the URL was, but that was a big deal back when MySpace was a big deal. Yeah, so it's still there. Afterlife L Y F E dot me um, says if you wish to be notified when Afterlife dot me is available, enter your name and email address, and I think that's been there since like 2010 um it's been there for a while but it's an interesting idea yeah it is another person thought it would be an interesting idea to launch a wide-scale attack against wordpress blogs but that's no big deal only a few billion people use wordpress blogs right and apparently what is happening is it's um it's apparently not a very big botnet of home user pcs are launching this attack to try to get a bigger botnet so that they can, you know, launch other attacks later. But yeah, so if you have a WordPress, a WordPress blog, especially if you haven't used it in the last year or two, and there's tons of people out there who created a blog, did one post and never went back there, you know, and your username for it is like admin, you know, you might want to go and either just totally disable it, or if you still use it, make sure you don't have a weak password or one, two, three, four, five, six, or I love Fido or something easily guessable like that. So it's apparently an ongoing attack that has been going on for a while. And it um, it's just basically brute forcing, trying to brute force passwords of WordPress blogs in an effort to create a larger botnet. Yeah, and there's really no idea yet what they're going to do. HostGator which hosts a lot of WordPress sites, says the attack is organized and very distributed. We've seen over 90,000 IP addresses involved in this attack. Wow. So, you know, the thing there is don't have weak passwords and don't use the admin account. Disable that thing. Definitely. 
or put a ginormous, you know, three hundred character gibberish password. If right. you have to have it. Haystack your passwords, or as Mark will probably say, if I don't use LastPass. Use LastPass. LastPass so. is a key. Yeah, so if you're not familiar with the concept of password haystacks, Google it. You'll find Steve Gibson's page. Basically, the idea is it doesn't really matter how good a password is as long as it's long. So it can be a string of very long, weak characters, and that's fine. So dot, 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 Fido, comma, 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 is a super strong password when you think about it, because they don't know the difference between the dots and the commas and the word Fido. They just know it's a character they have to brute force. Yep. Right. And what I always do when I haystack is I use an upper, at least I use an uppercase, a lowercase, a number, and a symbol has the front and back of my haystack. So I'll do something like one Q dollar sign capital R, and I'll put that on the front and the back, and then I'll stick my password like this is my password in the middle. So I meet the complexity requirements, and then I make it really long. And if I know what my haystack is. I only have to remember my password. So there you go. There's a there's a cheat sheet for you, everyone. Well, here's here's what I, I, I'll even I'll open the kimono a little bit. I have some characters at the beginning and some characters at the end, and then my password for every site is the name of the website. So for elementop.com, it's the stuff at the beginning, the stuff at the end, and elementop.com. So hmm. if you figure out the stuff at the beginning and the stuff at the end, you can hack into any one of my accounts. Um, that you don't uh -oh. use LastPass That for. I don't use LastPass on, which is a handful. Right. Um, so now let's talk about an actual Linux news story. What good is Linux? What's it good for? Well, we've talked about Boris boxes. We've talked about uh, uh, media centers. We've talked about web servers. But we've never talked about a Linux-powered gun before. I want to get me one of these. These <laughs> things look awesome. Dude, if I had $17,000 to buy a Linux-powered rifle, I would so buy that thing. But uh, it just, um, basically, it allows you to become an ultimate sniper, like think Mark Wahlberg from Shooter. Uh, you can do that with this rifle. So uh, it uses it uses Linux, and I don't want to go into all the stuff because I haven't read this article in like a week and a half. But, um, <laughs> you know... I just think it would be really cool to have a super high-powered rifle running an operating system. It reminds me of an actually pretty good sci-fi movie I saw where the rifle, where their weapons were semi-intelligent. Yeah, so the, the basic upshot is you use um, a spotting device like an iPad here in the article, um, and the, the, the computer built into the rifle is measuring temperature and humidity and wind resistance and and has range finding built in and you just sort of put your axe where you want it to be and push the go button or in this case the trigger and it does the rest for you so any schmo can become the deadliest sniper in the world using a seventeen thousand dollar rifle right and so it's open source so um <laughs> you know so Thousand i'm sure richard Stallman will be talking about, about this, this article that's a long way away yeah, thousand Definitely. yards. Yeah, that's uh, three quarters of a mile, roughly. Yeah, and the rangefinder is a powerful laser rated at seventy-five watts. So, I mean, that's a freaking laser, man. Uh, <laughs> he says he delivered a point three three eight Lapua Magnum round. I'm not a gun nut, so I don't know what that means. Onto a target target about the size of a dinner plate at a range of one thousand eight yards. 
uh, <laughs> it's the first time he's ever tried it. He had never fired a rifle before that day. Right. And this particular gun has a range of up to 1,200 yards. So, you know, that that's pretty far. Um, Jeez. I'm not that's sure, crazy. but I think that might fall under the assault weapons ban. Could be. Uh, well, but, you know, as long as your, your clip doesn't hold more than <laughs> uh, 10 shots, you should be fine. And this is, I'm still in Texas, Mark. I'm not in Georgia or Atlanta. So... Hey, anyway. you get to Montana, where everybody has at least three guns in their house, <laughs> I think I could probably get away with it, yeah. considering I know somebody who has three Barrett 50s. Oh, yeah. If you have a lot of money and you really don't like dinner plates, this is the <laughs> gun for you. Okay, so moving on to the, the listener feedback for this week's show. Uh, we start off with Joe who just flooded us with a whole lot of questions. So the next hour of this show brought to you courtesy of Joe. Even Thank broke you, it Joe. down, even broke it into the categories. File systems. I, I am confused about what I should use for my future backup server that will run Linux. Most of what I will back up is on Windows boxes. ZFS and ButterFS are supposed to be super awesome, but will Samba allow Windows boxes to see these or any other type of file system? Uh, I would like to hear more about what all of these file systems are, what they do, and what would be best for my applications, a NAS server, and how to integrate the backup server with X file system into my network. Keep in mind that this is all new to me, and I understand just enough to know that Windows uses NTFS and Linux uses EXT 3 or 4. Google searches and Wikipedia tell me uh, that X, Y, and Z about Zombo or ZFS, but some context or translation into layman's English would be helpful. An example scenario. The Freenas site suggests that if you're using ZFS, you should plan on 6 gigs of RAM minimum, with a gig of RAM per terabyte of storage as a rule of thumb. So what will ZFS do for me that NFS, their other option, will not? Uh, what are the other file system options if I, go, if I use CentOS or Ubuntu on my backup server? All right, Joe. There's a lot of questions there in your first question, and a lot of misunderstanding. Yeah, um, that's fine because you said you didn't know. So I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not denigrating you for that. I'm just saying that your your facts are confused there in a lot of different ways. First off, Samba and NFS are network protocols. Yep, that have nothing to do with the file system. So if you have Samba running on a Linux server, it does not care what file system. It's accessing. It just turns right. that file system into a Windows share. So a Windows share hits it. Samba does all the work and then figures out how to put things or pull things or change things uh, on the file system. So it doesn't matter what you have behind Samba. NFS is the same thing. Um, NFS stands for network file share or not effing secure, as some people like to call it. Um, yep. And it's the Linux version of of the windows file share it's a it's a it's a language that all linux boxes all unix boxes speak um it's simple it's easy to use um there isn't any real security at all to it it's just it just throws itself out there much like the windows it just says here i am i got files anybody want them come get them yep yeah there's no uh user permissions or well i guess there'd be some file restrictions but right. very very little 
Right. So the the, for, the restrictions for, Z, for NFS. The restrictions at that point are just like in Samba, uh, the file itself. You can lock down a file and say only Bob can access this file. But here's where you run into trouble with both NFS and Samba. You have to run Samba as somebody. Okay, yep. so every user who comes in through Samba looks like this person. So if you have a file lockdown that said only Bob can do it, and you have James is the thing that you log in for, for Samba, every Samba user will look like James to the file system. And will not be able to access the Bob-only file. Exactly. So you need to treat both Samba and uh, NFS as wide open spaces. Don't put things on there that you're interested in securing because you really can't secure them. Um, use FTP or SFTP for things that are important to you. That's when you actually log in to the protocol as a particular person and and access the file as that person. But when you're using NFS uh, and Samba, generally you're root. And so root can get or, access to lots of stuff. Yeah. Well, maybe not root because root, most programs don't run as root, well, but yeah. it, as something that's that's been chained down, uh, a username that's been chained down. Usually, it's something like uh, Samba. Right. Yeah. The, generally, the there's a Samba name. user. You're right. I misspoke. It's not root, but usually you give the Samba user wide access to files and basically say Samba right. can look at everything because that's what you want. And NFS, the user NFS can look at everything. Those are sort of the defaults built in. I think. I don't think. I think if you configure nothing. The Samba user has access to every file on your system. Uh, every access to the file, anything that's been marked as shared to the right. network. Because you, you'd have to actually go in and mark something as a shared file. Then Samba would just say, this file, this folder is accessible to the network and would be readable and writable to anybody. Now, uh, one thing that, that uh, now you, you asked about uh, ZFS or ButterFS versus ext3 or 4 or gosh the millions of them that are out there riser fs or yeah the, they all have their their pros and cons i stick with ext4 because it's the most widely supported and it's the most stable and it's the one you're most likely to be able to get help with right now right and i would say at this point butter uh, is not ready for prime time there's still uh until this is my personal feeling on butter and it goes the same thing with ZFS and any of the newer file systems that are being developed. Until somebody like Red Hat has cleared it, I won't put it on any of my machines because Red Hat bashes a file system to the point where it, you know, that they put it through the their their stress test systems. And until it's passing all of Red Hat's stress tests, they don't put it on any of their systems. So I would say until it passes a Red Hat stress test i wouldn't use it as your backup server maybe as your laptop something that you can blow away at the you know it, oh it, it corrupted i'm not too worried about it but if it's something that's you're going to be accessing for a long time use a file system that's been beat on and trusted by multiple factors and red hat is a good i would say that they're a good place to look at to see if a, if a file system has been certified yeah and uh to, to just give you a little, uh, this is high-level stuff. So you uber geeks out there, cut me some slack. I'm super simplifying things. EXT 
uh, three, four, two, whatever, is a journaled file system, uh, much like yep. NTFS is a journaled file system. And, and essentially what that means is every time a read or write is done, particularly writes, are done to the hard drive, a, a log is made of that. And so with limited success, if a file is damaged, it can go check the, the log and recreate the steps that got you there. So if, a, uh, if you've ever run check disk on a Windows machine and it comes up talking about orphaned files um, or, or file handles that are, are mislabeled, that's what it's doing. It's like, okay, the hard drive says X. My journal file says Y. I'm going to make the hard drive look like the journal. And you have limited ability to recover a hard drive crashes that way. But yep. it's, it's not something that you should depend on. Now, ZFS and ButterFS, one of the reasons that they say they require so much RAM is they do shadow copying like crazy in RAM. So every time you do something, it does it to the hard drive and then does it again in RAM, more or less. So those files can totally be recreated. They, they say that, that there's almost no way to lose data on yeah, a ZFS. The, it actually not only does it to RAM... But from my understanding, it also does it to a shadow partition on the hard, or not a partition, but a, a shadow section to the hard drive as well. Right. So it's that's why they ask for so much RAM because they're they're heavy. They're very heavy operating systems. You won't feel it because you're giving so much resources to it. But uh, yeah, eventually, when I think all the bugs are worked out of it, they're going to be the next systems that everyone's going to be using. Right. And it's a true uh, deduplication. If you have the same file in multiple locations, uh, you only have one file taking up space on your hard drive. Uh, total data redundancy. The promise, the list of promises that both ButterFS and ZFS make are huge. They have yet to deliver on a lot of those. But once they do, it will be the file system of choice, I'm sure. Yeah, it'll be a game changer. And if I remember correctly, I think ZFS is being used currently by the Oracle system too. Um, that's their file system of choice, but it's proprietary to Oracle. Right. So that's why it's not really available to the Linux and Unix people as of yet. So to sum up, use EXT4 as of the time of this publication um, and share it out with Samba to your Windows machines and NFS to your, to your Linux machines. That's, that's the way you want to do things in a home network. Um. Moving on to your next question. Doxus 3.0. Should I upgrade my Doxus 2.0 cable modem to the new Doxus 3.0? I usually get between 6 megabits and 12 megabits, but sometimes as low as 1.3 megabits and as high as 18 megabits, according to speakeasy.net speed test. I've not had any trouble streaming Netflix on two separate de devices at the same time uh, in standard definition. Um, the one good thing I can say about Comcast is that the internet connection has been rock solid since it was installed in 2007. I hate to fix what isn't broken, and I'm not sure what benefit I'd get from the upgrade. Uh, no. If it works, don't worry about it. The next time you upgrade, you'll get a Doxus 3.0 modem. But don't mess with the one you've got. Or a yeah, 4 point, depending on how long you wait between upgrades. Right. Right, and just so you know, things like uh, speed test and speakeasy, sometimes ISPs, uh, there, there's a whole easy way for them to fudge those numbers. Yeah. And also, when you're dealing with cable modems, how many other people are on your particular cable node at the time of the test can determine how fast you go. Because they only have, for every node in the cable modem network, they only have all that bandwidth is aggregated amongst everybody. So if a hundred people are using it, you'll get a faster speed than if a thousand people are using exactly. it. 
So, yeah, that, so that can explain a lot of those differences. And cable that's is, why you also notice when you're doing your, when you sign up for something, they say up speed to, up to right. 12 or 18 or whatever the, the contract says. It's because in cable, they can give you uh, a more flexed uh, bandwidth based yeah. on usage in your area. In the same way, we do up to 58 podcasts a day. <laughs> of course, uh, DSL, which is a direct link from you to your ISP that's not shared with anybody else, they still use the up to language because there are lots of things that can hamper performance at any one time. Uh, for example, you may still have a, a rock solid 50 megabits, whatever you're paying for, to your provider, but they don't have the bandwidth at their network operations center. They're being hammered, so they don't have 50 megabits to give you. So you still, even with a DSL, you're still sharing the the, the provider's bandwidth. Right. And, uh, you know, so particularly if you're in a rural area where your ISP is, you know, Bob's internet and stuff that he runs out of his basement, it doesn't matter how solid your connection to Bob is. It matters how many connections he can handle at one time. Uh, yep. And even the big boys of Comcast and AT&T, um, they re re regularly oversell their bandwidth. Their business is based on overselling their bandwidth, assuming nobody's going to be using it all and not not everybody's always going to be using it at the same time and the other problem i have with speakeasy and any of the other speed tests is that they only give you a portion of the actual problems you may have with your internet connection yeah. um, that only gives you consistent download you know if you're downloading or uploading a large file uh there's also uh, the ping test.net is another one to run if you're trying to figure out if you have a latency issue uh where it, it, the packets don't reach you in a fair amount of time um, if you're a gamer, you know what ping is, and you know the lower the number, the better it is. Uh, same thing goes true when you're streaming from Netflix. The lower your ping rate is, the better your stream will be. So if you're streaming, it, let's say you, you go to ping test right now and you run it, and it's giving you, you know, say, normal, you know, and you'd have to run it multiple times during the day to give you your, a rough average of what your ping test will be. Uh, for me, Anything between 50 and 80 milliseconds is what I get, uh, and that's on a good day. I've seen them go all the way up to, say, 200 on a bad day, and when I was having network issues you with suck. my DSL modem, <laughs> um, yeah, but I was also going all the way up to uh, 700 almost or three seconds at a time. Welcome so, to my world. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, just, latency. Just to give you a quick primer. Um, Joe and anybody else who's listening on there's three components to speed to internet speed. There's bandwidth, the amount of data that can be transmitted at, at one moment in time, the size of the hose that goes right. to your house. There's latency. There's that's the, the, the round trip time. How long is the hose? Uh, and there's, you know, like in the summer when you got a hot hose and you're trying to get a drink of water out of it, it seems to take forever to get cold water through it. That's the latency of the pipe, the water coming from the pipe to your mouth. So, um, and then the other one is throughput. Now, throughput is almost impossible to measure. That's how much is taken up. That's your overhead. That's how uh, how much is taken up by your of your bandwidth by just stuff. Uh, and whatever everything requires some kind of throughput. TCP headers uh, are tacked onto everything you do. And every time it passes through a firewall, there's another header added. So your actual throughput, you can have rock solid bandwidth and zero latency and still see vastly different download times depending on where you're hitting, what kind of stuff you're doing, 
So uh, sites like speedtest.net and, and Speakeasy were designed to test your throughput. But ISPs, as Seth said, understand that that's the, the, the yardstick by which they'll be measured. And so they prioritize those packets. They cache those packets. They, they squish those packets. So you're always going to look good on speedtest.net because they know that you're, that's where you're looking. Um, yeah. so unfortunately that's, they're still the best measure on the internet that I know of, and it's just not very good. So the other thing that you could come into play there too, though, is the quality of your router. If you have a poor router, then you could have, you know, large issues with the internet as well. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and that's what you started out with, with your Doxus 2, Doxus 3, uh, upgrading the, the firmware on your router may give you an advantage. It also equally may trash your router entirely. Uh, what you can probably do, you said you've had it since 2007, call them up and say, can I get a new router? And most likely, you'll be able to get one if, you're, if it's that old. In my case, I pay a $7 a month router rental fee um, because I didn't want to pay the money. I'm, I'm renting this house. I don't know how I'm going to be here when I move. I may not be able to get Xfinity, so I, I chose not to buy my own. Uh, in that case, um, you know, they have to replace it if it's broken. So I could just accidentally drop it in the toilet and uh, they'd send me another one. Uh, <laughs> not that I'm recommending you do that. I'm just saying there are options. You know, should you need to find yourself in a position to get a new router, there are methods by which such a router could be obtained. A squirt gun accident in your room? <laughs> yeah. you know. I don't know how the cover came off. It just accidentally shattered into a thousand pieces the shelf the modem was on accidentally fell down on the stairs yeah and what's funny is as soon as we started this and discussion got ran over by two cars <laughs> as soon as we started discuss this discussion about bandwidth mine went in the toilet <laughs> and so now if you guys are listening live everybody's talking like this now but It'll be fine by the time I send out the edit. So next question, Joe says, virtualization. This comes up a lot in your podcast. Is the OS installed inside of VirtualBox persistent? I.e., can I close VirtualBox with Mythbuntu installed, then have the same Mythbuntu install available to relaunch? One word answer, yes. It is a virtual computer. Whatever you can do on a computer, you can do inside a virtual computer. You can suspend it. You can reboot it. You can format it. It's a virtual hard drive with a virtual CPU. It is a computer. And the nice thing about it, too, is those, those hard drive files that VirtualBox makes in order to, uh, to write the, the OS to it, you can take that off of one computer, bring it to another computer, feed it the, hardware, the hard drive file, and start it right back up and not lose anything. Yep. And not only that, but you could like pause it, suspend it, and it'll pick right back up where it was. The system won't even know it was ever moved. That's the beauty of yep. virtualization. Yep. And as, long as, easy, the, as long as the host or the guest machine is configured the same way, you know, same yeah. RAM, same processor allocation, etc. Well, and it's super easy to take backups too. You can just actually copy those files and uh, like, you know, if you have an XP machine or whatever, or um, say you set up an Ubuntu machine, you can copy those files and just basically edit the INI portions and change the names and you could have like a hundred of the same machine configured. Yep. So VirtualBox is kind of cool like that. So, 
and not just virtual box any virtual system vmware right. uh proxmox um yep. any of those guys they're all basically the same idea yeah and i don't know who created it i think vmware gets the credit for coming up with it uh but they were good enough to they didn't necessarily open source the all of their technology but the core of it and so the vmdk virtual uh virtual machine disk file is a standard that anybody can read for the most part except i don't think microsoft does not that they could they just choose not to next joe asked about old computers as servers um we answered this question now that i look at it yeah in, in, a, in a previous show but i'm going to read it anyway we'll do it again um can i buy a working dell Pentium 3 for 20 dollars from a local guy on craigslist uh, I said I can buy a, for, for, buy a working machine from a guy on Craigslist. This would be perfect for a Boris box, but what about as a backup server? Cheap SATA controller cards are $20 and a NIC is $10. The Pentium 3 uses much less power than a Pentium 4, so it would be cheap to buy and to operate. My data would be on a new hard drive, but everything else would be 15 years old. Is this a good option for a backup server, or am I inviting disaster by using such old hardware? Can failing can a failing old power supply take my new hard drive with it when it dies? Uh, I know every component will eventually die, but I've heard you speak of the myth of obsolescence. If an old computer still runs an old OS and holds my drives, at what point is it obsolete? Um, my take on that is you can try it, but I'm not entirely sure I would trust it. Just because, like you said, the components, at some point, there's mechanical failure. Uh, power supplies, right. capacitors, things like that tend to wear out. So if I bought that that working Dell for $20, I'd probably end up putting a $30 power supply in it just to make sure it works. And then I could trust it. And at that point, you're well, not really saving a lot of money. Well, although yeah, if it's that old of a Dell, it probably has a much better power supply than you can buy from Dell today. So uh, it's probably better to keep that one in there. They are notoriously, well, I just pick on Dell and say they're notoriously about shipping bad power supplies with all their computers now. But back then, they were solid. Yeah, and so you're uh, you're also looking at, uh, you know, it's a 32-bit system. You're never going to get a 64-bit modern OS on it. But that doesn't, I don't know that that really matters to you if you're going to be running as a, as a backup. I would say it's okay um, to do. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But I don't really think it's the right way to go. Um, yeah, not when you can get a newer, you know, over on Geeks, you can get, pick up a machine for hundred bucks. That's a newer operating, uh, newer core, you know, core two or a core three, you know, six six to eight gigs of RAM for a hundred dollars, and it would have plenty of space and power to run any backup server that you'd want to run, or any other Boris box that you might want to run as well. Yeah. And if you're going to be buying new hard drives to stick in it and new SATA cards and all that sort of stuff, you're you're going to you're going to end up spending money, you know, way more than that twenty dollars anyway. Um, right. And I just don't think it's you're putting good money after bad. I think uh, the answer to your question is yes, it will work. And no, there's no showstopper there. I just don't think it's a wise investment of your time and effort and money. Yeah. And just to point out, the uh, Pentium 3 is no longer supported by the current Linux kernel, so you could not run any current version of Linux that uses the latest Linux kernel. Right. So you'd have so. to run old an old OS on old hardware, which the only potential problem there is you're running with known bugs. Uh, and yep. if you're going to have it attached to the internet, that could pose a security risk, but you generally aren't going to put your backup server on the internet. 
All right. I was just trying to bring some Linux focus. I appreciate that. Uh, uh, but out of the chat room, we have a question here from TRS80 uh, asking a question about VMware and having to have an export in order to be properly opened. Uh, that depends on what the host is. Uh, VirtualBox doesn't usually care. Uh, I know, what was it? VMware Workstation does matter. You do have to do it. Uh, there's an exported routine you have to run. At least the last time I played with VMware Workstation. Uh, but most of the other virtualizing systems, they don't care. They just take it and go. And and I'm going to say go one uh, further and say you don't have to even on those. It just makes things smoother if you do, because otherwise you pull it up and and it's going to say, all right, I've got this hard drive. What computer was attached to it? How would I, how do I treat this hard drive? What do I, what am I supposed to do with it? The exporting just makes sure all the bits are put together. It's like zipping it up, essentially. You get all your files in the same place. It's not a requirement, uh, but it's it's the it's the right thing to do if you can. Yeah, but you know, but on if my you had a, a if you had a host machine crash you would be able to just drop it in as long as you could recreate the right. the, the, the virtual machine. At my old job, when I was a sysadmin, I had a backup, uh, I had a VM server, and a backup VM server with exactly the same specs, uh, not quite as much RAM, and I just ran an rsync every night and just made an exact copy of those VMs as they existed so that if the big one went down, I could turn it off, fire up the, the little one, and the machines would never know the difference. That's the way, you know, that was an easy way to have a, a fail safe for me. Yep. It works great. All right. Moving on to his next question, multi-boot. With my 2009 dual-core laptop, it seems better to try distros by installing on bare metal rather than having to spread the resources thin with virtualization. I have four partitions. Uh, one, Windows boot. Two, Windows 7. Uh, three, Ubuntu. And four, slash home. Um, when I try to install another distro, Gparted returns an error. Can't have more than four primary partitions. I, I hear about people having six different distros on a single machine. How do they do that? Uh, I don't think I really want six different distributions on my box, but I might want to try that many partitions. Is it possible to have more than five, four primary partitions on a hard drive? That depends on the uh, format of your hard drive. If you're running it on a Windows machine uh, with NTFS, no, that's the limit of the NTFS bootloader. Yep. If you're running it on a uh, Linux machine using, um, oh, what's the, Grub, you can have 50 of them. You wouldn't care. Well, I don't think they're primary partitions, though, Mark. I think they're, uh, what are they called? Uh, the the, na- the verbiage ex- escapes me at the moment. What is that called? Extended. Well, Yes, that's the word. Extended partitions, then. Yeah, and a primary partition is a partition from which you boot. So, like, your home partition, for example, is not a primary partition, uh, the way you've got it there. Um, And can't you have multiple um, distros on the same partition? I mean, just installed to different directories? I know in Windows, such a thing is possible. Yeah, if your bootloader supports it, depending on, on what your bootloader is, absolutely. And they don't all have to be primary. So you, what you want to do is boot into whatever your bootloader is. Uh, in the Linux world, it would be like Grub or Lilo. Uh, and you would then tell More it what to do Grub. from there. Right. And then you would tell it what to do from there. In Windows, there is a limited ability to edit the boot.ini uh, and point at things. And then you still only have one primary partition, and you're just pointing it at different places. 
And that's what when you you know run, uh, put install Ubuntu side by side, that's what it does for you. It edits that file for you. Um, but I think what you're running into is the the active uh, the primary versus extended. Uh, what you should be able to do is mark things like your home. If you've got it marked as primary, uh, you, that was unnecessary, um, and you're not actually booting from it. So the, that's one that you're that you're wasting right now. So the you really only need one, maybe two primary partitions. The rest of them you get away with extended or logical. Yeah, um, I would say Windows I would leave as primary partitions, but any Linux OS you could probably do as logical or an extended partition right. without too much of a problem, because Grub should be able to point to the, any of those without a, without a big deal at all. Right, because you're really you're, the only thing you're booting to is Grub, so you've got your little Linux boot partition, and then everything else is not primary. Uh, and then we we also had Travmon in the tra- chat room points out about your old P3. There's a good chance it can't even read larger modern drives the bios just can't do it so going back to the other discussion we were having you might not even be able to get over uh like a, a terabyte or even 500 gigs de- uh, depending on the bios that you had i hadn't thought about that yeah um i ran into that a couple of times and i got around it by using a raid card right that was a cheap and easy fix for that all right moving on his last question joe Good stuff. Uh, he said, ask about Cat6 cable. For in-wall installation of cables, does it matter if it's solid or stranded? If I also plan to make my own patch cables from leftover, is one better than the other? Um, little physics here. Electrons travel along the outside of a conduit. They don't like to travel through it. Over 90% of the electrons in a wire travel along the outside of the wire. The other 10%, when they run out of room, will be forced to go through the core. So when you use stranded cable, you have a lot more outsides. It's better, it's more conductive cable. If you use yep. solid cable, uh, you only have one outside. So generally speaking, um, stranded cable is going to be uh, better for long distances and and more effective uh, for uh, high-speed data throughput. The solid core cable is when you're less interested in speed and more interested in making sure that stuff gets where it needs to go. Because with uh, with the strands, with all those outsides, and again, geeks, I'm super simplifying this, the, the electrons sort of bump into each other and it creates electrical noise because you're using stranded cable. Um, most Cat5 that you buy at the store is going to be six strands of solid core wire. And that's your highest... Um, security in terms of uh, highest fidelity. You, the The strands are twisted. It's called twisted pair. Each, if you look at it, each pair is twisted at a different rate so to sort of cancel out the magnetic fields. Anytime an electron travels across a metal, it creates a, a magnetic field, and they're twisted in such a way that those can those tra- magnetic fields cancel each other out. So your standard uh, twisted pair Cat five or six cable is going to be solid. Um, and it's going to work just fine. You can use stranded. There's nothing wrong with it. There's, but generally that's harder to find, uh, and there's kind of there's not really any reason for it. And that's my my advice there. Yeah, it's sound advice though. Go to Home Depot, buy what's in the box for fifty bucks. I mean, it, it's not any more complicated than that. But make sure if you're going to put it in the wall, you're using the right covering. The the what is it? Plenum. Plenum. Yeah. So yeah, well, that's the, only if you're going through ducting. Right. 
A plenum, in case you don't know, a plenum is a is an air duct, a space where air travels. So if you want a plenum, if you buy something plenum rated, that means that when it burns, it doesn't produce any toxic gases. So you can run it inside your air duct. I always buy plenum cable anyway, just to be safe. That's that's just always been my philosophy. I worked in education yep. where there were kids. Um, I, I shucked out the extra 10% to get plenum. It's stiffer. It's a little harder to work with. But that's just kind of the way I always went with it. The other one is PVC, uh, uh, standard polyvinyl carbonate um, casing, throws off toxic fumes when it burns. But it's for the children. Yeah. <laughs> but that, yeah, I, I agree with the plenum. Don't you love I, America? I do the same thing. I buy plenum as much as I possibly can. So yeah, there you go. There's uh, the uh, the long and the short version uh of your answer there just the just buy the cheap stuff as for cat 5e versus cat 6 um i always go as high as possible um there's still some people there are people out there selling cat 6e um that standard isn't actually ratified yet they're selling it in the hopes that it will be ratified i wouldn't buy that uh but you know if you can afford cat 6 go ahead and get it if there's you know if it's a hundred percent more cat 5e is fine cat 5e will go up to 10 gigabits and you're probably not going to need more than that in your house. But if you're wiring your house for selling point, you know, might as well put Cat Six in. You might be able to get an extra few couple bucks off your on your house when you go to sell it. Whew. Because it's future proof. Right. <laughs> All right, Joe. Thank you for for that. That was great. All that came from one email. Uh, the next one is a uh, a question from Guillaume. Great name. Since I actually have Linux Mint 14 on my laptop with the Cinnamon desktop. When I use a second monitor positioned to my left from time to time, the Chrome window will suddenly jump to the left monitor for no apparent reason. I was using Fedora 17 with Cinnamon several months ago and had the exact same problem. Chrome is the only program that is doing that. Now, my question is this. To whom should I report the bug? The Cinnamon team, the Gnome team, the Muffin team, the Chrome team, or any other team. Also, in general, how much effort would you suggest users put into bug reporting? Great question, Guillaume, and something we've never covered before. Uh, I would say in that issue, I would report the problem to both the Chrome team and the Cinnamon team. Because yep. it's those are the two um, common denominators. You were using Chrome on Cinnamon on two different operating systems, and you had the same problem. So that's that's where I would go. The question of how much energy should you put into it, that depends on your own personality. I've never reported a bug in all my years. I've never done it. Uh, but, you know, only by bug reporting do bugs get fixed. So, you know, if uh, you're being a good Internet citizen, if you report a bug, you're not necessarily being a bad Internet citizen if you don't. No comments there. They're both yawning literally at the same time. Sorry. Sorry. About that. You didn't have the black butt of the earth that I did. <laughs> no, I didn't. Actually, I didn't even have my tea today, so I'm, I'm all sorts of dragon. Um, I, yeah, I would agree, though. Cinnamon and Chrome, you report the bug to both. Um, chances are, if you're on Fedora, they're going to ask for a little bit more information from you um, because they do have that auto. Uh, if it's a crash, they do. But um, I don't. Personally, I report any bug that shows up because, you know, in Fedora, they have the automatic bug reporter uh, and it kind of builds everything up for you. But, you know, it, it just, I would say it's a, 
it, it's up to you. Yeah. Um, if you want to be a good internet citizen or a good a good Linux citizen, then I would at least try to do something and keep track of that bug because maybe you know it's only you that it's happening on. Chances are it's not. Yeah. My personal but, philosophy and the reason I've never reported a bug is because I know there are people like Chris out there that report every bug. Um, and, you know, it, you can sometimes get some not entirely politely worded responses if you report <laughs> a bug that's already been reported a hundred times. So there is some effort involved. You got to go do the the bug tracker. You got to search for something that looks familiar. Yep. Um, and then you can sort of plus one it to use a Google term, but you can say, yeah, I'm having that problem too. Uh, but if you re-report the same bug, you're likely to have some bile launched in your direction, um, which is why I've never done it. I figure that the geeks out there who are more hardcore than I am are probably already aware of it and working on it, and they don't need me to say, hey, I'm having this problem because they already know about it. The other thing you could do is check into the IRC channels. Um I don't know if Chrome has an IRC channel for support, but I'm sure Cinnamon does. Uh, jump over there and ask for one of the devs if you know, you know, put a question up, and you might get some flame. You might get, you know, why didn't you, you know, search it out? But uh, you never know. You might get a kind-hearted geek in there that says, "Oh yeah, that's going to be bug fixed in the second release from today." That would well, be a, a simple say- way to check without actually going through the effort of writing a bug. Yeah, I would say probably just report it to the Cinnamon team because the Chrome team, their version changes every like hour every 17 minutes. on the minute. So by the time you report for version 20, they're on version 50. And then the time you re-report it for version 75, it's like to version, you know, pi to the 50th power. And uh, they just keep jumping. So that would be a super lot of work to actually report a bug to the Chrome team. But Cinnamon would probably be your best bet. There you go. And then our next suggestion comes from Kevin. He says, how about talking about your experiences with the first time with Linux? For me, it was installing Slackware 3.5 on an old 386 computer with 32 megs of RAM and a 20 meg hard drive and a 14.4 modem. Took me days to configure the hardware. The modem was the worst to get get set up. It was the only time I configured my own kernel. Oh, Kevin, you poor man. <laughs> you, my, my geek hat is off to you for having compiled your own kernel. I have, I have a number of times been presented with that as the solution, and I just moved on to a different distro. I'm just, I'm not going to do it. I've never compiled my own kernel. I refuse to compile my own kernel. I'm never going to do it. Really? I've, I've done at least three, and out of the three, only two actually worked. <laughs> yeah. So, uh,. <laughs> I will um, pop some corners in the microwave, make some popcorn. That's about as close as I'm going to get <laughs> <laughs> to compiling my own. So unless it involves butter and salt, I'm really not up to compiling kernels. So my um, first experience with Linux, my my virgin experience was Red Hat 9, I think, um, installing... I had heard about, I was looking into content filtering for the school for which I worked. I had read about Dan's Guardian and knew that it needed a Linux box and typed in Linux into Google. And the first thing that popped up was Red Hat. And I said, okay, I'll go get that. Um, and it was on 386 hardware. I'm not quite as old as yours. I think I probably had uh, 96 megs of RAM in it, maybe. Um, and it was amazingly simple. 
the install process was comparable to installing Windows 95 at the time. Um, the configuration was, you know, it took me a couple of days to configure Squid and Dan's Guardian and get it all working right. Um, but it worked. And that was my first experience with Linux. I was like, wow, this works. You have to put some work into it. But when you're done, it works. And the amazing thing is I've been with it over the years is the amount of work you have to put into it has gone way, way down. Yeah. Now, often it just works out of the box. I remember Nopix blew my mind. The fact that you just pop it in and it auto configures hardware and it detects things and gives you a GUI just because that's freaking amazing. I'd never seen anything like it before, uh, which came shortly, not too long after my first experience. So I, my first experience was there in the Red Hat world, and I have stuck with that for a long time. CentOS, um, you know, based on Red Hat is still my favorite server OS. Uh, I ran Fedora on my desktop for a long time um, until Fedora 6 made me hate it. Um, I think it was, no, six was the last good one. Maybe I can't remember exactly where it was, but there was a good one. And then everything after it sucked, <laughs> I stopped caring and moved on to Ubuntu, um, and have been on derivatives of that since. So there's my story. That would have been circa 1999. See, I'm a little bit old. I'm a little bit younger in the tooth than you, Mark. Uh, my first experience was with Red Hat 7.1. If I remember my, if I remember correctly, I actually went out and bought the box from my local bookstore, along with the box for, oh, I don't remember what version of SUS Linux it was at that time back in nine, in just after, just around two thousand, um, is when I actually first tried to install it on my own. Uh, I I played with it in college at Devry um, because it was in the de it was in the labs, but. Uh, I never actually tried to install it until about 2000, and I, I I gave up. What was the reason I gave up with it? Mainly the first time, uh, the first time I gave it up was I think it was I couldn't get the LAN card to configure, and they said something about you had to rewrite some stuff in the in compile your own kernel, and I said, uh, "Wah!" Well, huh? <laughs> it ran away, uh, but I also had sound problems too, so I I had a whole bunch at the time, and then. A couple years later, I came back to Red Hat and said, okay, let's try this again. And I fell in love and, yeah, the rest is history. I think part of the reason my initial experience with Linux was so good was it was in the server room. I didn't care about audio. Didn't even have a sound card in the machine. I didn't care about 3D rendering. Um, I didn't care about Wi-Fi. I was just going to be plugging into the network. So these those things that are desktop specific that have been the bane of Linux for so long just didn't affect me. And I had already become a Linux fan before I ever tried to put it on a laptop. Because if I hadn't, if my first experience with uh, Warty Warthog was my first experience with Linux, I probably would have stopped it right there and never gone any farther. Yeah. Yeah, I can't, yeah. I, I keep coming back. I think it's, it's part of my innate ability to tinker because I keep tinkering with things. And I think... Uh, Depending on how things go, I might be tinkering with another kernel just to be fun. Yeah, my first experience was actually when I uh, started working for Mark in Honey Grove with um, Puppy on those machines and then troubleshooting while managing the servers. So, and then for my personal laptop, the, fir or the first thing I ever did personally was the Ubuntu Netbook Remix on my little tiny netbook computer. That was the first one. I installed on something of my own just because. So I'm 
I'm very recently into the Linux world uh, in comparison to both of y'all. What Seth is talking about, the the puppy machines, it was something I invented a few years ago. It was what I, I call it a chubby client. It was uh, it was Linux, uh, puppy Linux running on the hard drive or the floppy drive, actually, early on of the machine, calling to the Windows, the R desktop in Linux, calling to a Windows terminal server. So you had a, a Windows terminal server experience, but you were running on puppy. And, I, and Puppy makes it easy to, to spin your own distro. You can configure it like you want and then spit out a copy of that like you want. And so I've, I've, I wrote a script that uh, formats the hard drive and wrote the files and configured the, the autoexec.bat uh, file and, and used, uh, what is the Windows, the, the clone of DOS, FreeDOS. Yeah, FreeDOS. Yeah, ran FreeDOS and then loaded the, the Puppy kernel that ran through no not the it was something it wasn't puppy it was before i ever got to puppy there was something else linload something like that i can't remember so long ago it loaded puppy puppy then expanded itself logged on to the graphical desktop the 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 start x program launched our desktop and took you to a windows log on screen on the server so the the end users the students and teachers did not know they weren't using windows uh, and it was all, it was this, this hybrid thing that I had created and we were using old, um, P 75s, old wow. computers with like 16 megs of Ram running puppy Linux. And they were getting a modern, uh, server 2003 experience out of it. So that yep. was, that was Seth's first experience. It was this, this bastard child I had created <laughs> of, of combining every open source thing I could find. And I said, here, go deploy these. What is this? It would take me too long to explain. Just push this button and this button. Go. <laughs> yep. But he he discovered uh, a love of the puppy. Wow, that yep. sounded dirty. Just a little I bit. love puppies. They're cute and cuddly. Sorry. I'm back. <laughs> All right. And that's it. Thanks for your feedback, guys. Let's do this again sometime. How about we do this every couple of months? That means I need fun. I need you guys to to send me more questions. Joe, get back to it. Send me another uh seventeen page email with lots of questions. <laughs> um Yo, that was a great suggestion. Thanks for the trip down memory lane. Um before we go, I think yeah, we're just gonna move right into it. Chris, what is your um command line of the week? Um uh, you know, I had a couple that I was going to use, and then I found out that I reused them already. So the one I'm going to bring up is a switch to AppKit because I used it quite a bit during that last month and because I installed all those PPAs to try to actually get things to you know current versions instead of the, the frozen versions that they were before. And it's AppKit and then disk-upgrade. This will actually use the most current version of whatever piece of software it is, not the ones that are the installed uh, sources. So if you install, say, the PPA for Pigeon, um, normally you won't tran you won't move off of one repository to another one unless you issue this type of a command. Uh, and it's it's just one of those things you it's nice to have in your back pocket if you're wondering why Pigeon is at the older version and doesn't connect to anything anymore. All right. So, uh, yeah, if you want to upgrade your distribution from the command line like a boss, that's how you do it. 
Well, it, but that doesn't take you out of version number either. Right. It keeps you in your your twelve point oh four, and indefinitely, it never actually breaks over to twelve ten or anything else like that. So it's a nice thing to run if you don't mind it changing uh, re- sources. And Seth, I just peeked at your link. I've seen this one before. It's hilarious, and I got almost all of them wrong. So, Seth, what is your link of the week? This week, I am giving a quiz to all of our Element OP faithful. Can you tell if the picture is of a program language inventor or a serial killer? So uh, you go to the link. I'm going to throw it in the chat room now, and it will also be on the uh, show notes. Well, actually, maybe throw it into the chat room if I can copy the right thing. And you just you go there and you take the quiz. It shows you the picture of someone, and then you say, "Is this a serial killer or is this a program language inventor?" And uh, you see how many you can get right. Um, maybe there's a fine line between programming and serial killing. Let me tell you. I'll just give you a little hint. If you think serial killer. You're probably wrong <laughs> because some of the <laughs> sketchiest looking people are actually, you know, Professor Emeritus at, at this university who invented, you know, whatever. Um, it's a it's a great little exercise to go through and a fun time waster if you're not watching Netflix. Yeah. So, you know, you can have your Netflix window up in one uh, and then you can open up another window because, you know, we don't want Netflix to fall below that billion hour a month threshold. Um <laughs> So, uh, yeah, programming language inventor or serial killer and the links in the chat room. It will also be in the show notes when the show drops. All right, guys, that was a fun show. It was, I like it when we just get to, to, uh, talk off the cuff, you know, we don't do that very often. So it's only once a week that we do that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we appreciate the fact that you hung out with us for nearly an hour and a half. Um, more importantly, we appreciate that that you listened at all, and and we encourage you to share the show with others. It, uh, we are seeing our numbers rise every week. That's great. That's only because of you that we're doing that. We come here and put out some mediocre content every week, and you are the ones who uh, drive it down other people's throats. And we appreciate that. Keep it up. Keep forcing yeah. your grandmother to listen to this show, um, whether she wants to or not. Uh, also, you feel free to contact us over at elementop.com. If you're watching this on YouTube and you didn't know that we actually have a whole website, that's where you can find it, elementop.com. There's a contact us button right at the top of the page. There's a leave us a voicemail widget where Google Voice will call you, and you can leave us a voicemail, and we will put it on the air. That's a threat and a promise. Uh, or if you... Uh, don't don't want to go that route and you're just out driving around, you can pick up uh, your phone and dial 559-IMOP anywhere in the continental U.S. and Canada, and you can leave us a voicemail right there. We haven't had any voicemails in quite a while. Uh, it was pretty much the door show for a while. Steve McLaughlin um, left us a voicemail like once a week. He's been uh, or a more little- often. He's been a little busy over there at the uh, the Podnuts Network and hasn't done that. Uh, so we need somebody to fill in his shoes, step in here, and leave us a voicemail. If you're outside the continental U.S. and Canada, just record a, an MP3 or or an AUG file, whatever your open source um, file format of choice is. Please don't send me a, a Markov 17 gig file. Um, keep it simple. Keep it, or you know, a couple of minutes or less. And uh, and we will be happy to play it on the show. We love the love that you listen. We love it even better when you share it with others. And I'm going to make this plea again. I know how painful it is to you, but please find it in your soul 
to go over to iTunes. Search us out on iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. That would be awesome. You know, when you buy that new laptop with Windows already installed, install iTunes, go rate us, and then blow it away for Before you format the hard drive, go ahead and do that for us. Right. Awesome. Yeah, we'd love it. Do it for us, and and then uh, pseudo send us a, a, a rating on iTunes. Yeah, and then that one guy who spun up the thousand VMs to download our podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if you if you were the guy who did that, thank you. And then go rate us on yeah. each one of those different VMs so that they all count for as separate ones. And hey, if you'd like us to talk about your product, we can be bought for a rather small sum. If you want to to buy effusive praise about your crappy, I mean, excellent product. Um, Contact me, Mark at elementopi.com, and we will talk about advertising. So, uh, awesome guys. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Seth, Chris, excellent work as usual. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going to say that ends this episode of Everyday Linux. Yeah.